Let's pray. Lord, I think of the second song that we sang and proclaims that we need you. Lord, that is true. I need you this morning. We need you this morning. We need you our whole lives. We need you to uh, open our eyes and our hearts so that we can understand what your word is telling us this morning. We need you to to put into us a a will, a desire to obey and, and walk in line with your word. We need you to give us the courage and the strength to follow through on that. Lord, we need you. We need you as a church. We need you as a, as a village, as a community here, as a country, as a world. We need you. So we come humbly before you, confessing our need, asking that you would meet with us now in the, the quiet places of our hearts and our minds. Pray, Lord, that you would open and reveal your word to us. You would show us what it means why it matters, and and what it is that you want us to do with it. We are your people. We offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are back into the book of Acts, chapter 9. You'll find it on page 918 if you're looking in one of the Black Pew Bibles. Because of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and Steve Short as a guest preacher, it's been a while since we were in Acts, and so I want to just give you guys a quick catching up of what has happened so far in Acts. The book of Acts is written by Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Acts is like part two of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke tells about the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and Acts picks up after that with the story of the early church. Focuses on the first few days and weeks, and then expands out to the first years, even decades, of the early Christian church. So far in Acts chapters 1 through 7, we've seen the church primarily growing in Jerusalem. You'll remember that after Jesus' resurrection, he met with his main guys and he gave them the commission to go out into the whole world and make disciples of all nations. He said, but wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you and empowers you for that ministry. On what we call the day of Pentecost, The Holy Spirit was poured out into the people of the church, empowering them for that mission, but they did not go out. They continued to stay in Jerusalem. The church grew rapidly. It went from what would be in America today a a good mid-sized or larger congregation of 120 people to many thousands in a matter of a few days. It was a dramatic disruptive movement in Jerusalem. And as the church grew, they needed to raise up leaders into certain positions. One of those leaders was a guy named Stephen, and he was given the kind of the regular uh, surface level task of helping to administer the food program, but he quickly rose up as a preacher in the church. And he ended up preaching a sermon to the religious leaders, the ruling council in Jerusalem, where he proclaimed the uniqueness and the divinity of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they killed him for it. Dragged him outside the city, pelted him with giant stones until he was dead. That started a great persecution that caused the church to scatter out, to finally leave Jerusalem and head out on their mission. Acts chapter 8 told us that one particular guy, Saul, was overseeing that persecution. Saul was a bad dude. He delighted in arresting beating and killing 
the young members, the members of the young Christian church. He was public enemy number one to Christianity, but God had a surprising plan for Saul. Acts chapter 9 begins with the conversion of Saul. The one who had been hunting Christians became the hunted. God pursued him and dramatically converted him to a new life in Christ. The one who was the persecutor of the church became the greatest missionary of the church. Today, we'll finish up Acts chapter 9, and the focus shifts away from Saul and back to Peter, who at the time is the leader of the church in Jerusalem and Judea, and really, really the whole world. He's the, the main disciple and the main leader in the church. Now, Peter, like us, was far from perfect. He still had a lot of growing to do, a lot of things he had to learn, but a lot of heart and behavior things that had to be changed in him. He really messed up at the end of Jesus' life, where he denied even knowing Jesus, he abandoned his Lord in the moment of highest need, and yet we saw in the sermon on Easter Sunday how Jesus gently restored Peter back into fellowship with him and back into leadership. So as Acts shifts now back to focus on Peter, we're going to see how Peter is still being worked on. Peter is a work in progress. So are we. Peter is incredibly gifted. He's been used already in amazing ways, and yet he has much to learn. And I pray that this is an encouragement for you guys today, too. It's an encouragement to me. Peter is not only a disciple, he's a disciple maker. But in order to be a good disciple maker, he has to first be a good and growing disciple. So we're going to look today at Peter as a disciple of Jesus and how he's used by Jesus to make more disciples of Jesus. And that is our calling too. We're going to read two stories today. They take place on the west coast of Israel. We're going to show up, throw a map up here and uh, get our bearings. So we've got Jerusalem as the capital city, not only of the county, we would say, of Judea, but of the whole nation. You can see the three main uh, significant differences or, or uh, areas of Israel at the time, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Jesus spent most of his time ministry up in the Galilee area, but Judea is the capital of the, the whole nation, and it is the religious center of the nation. It's where the church has been growing. If we go to the next slide, we're going to see that this day, Peter leaves Jerusalem, and he's going to travel down through the, the mountains of the central highlands, down to I know it looks like Lida or Lida, it would be pronounced Luda, so I'm going to try to pronounce that correctly as we go through, even though my mind says to pronounce it a different way. Uh, it is, it's Luda. And uh, then later today, we're going to see how he goes down to Yopa. Again, I'm going to try to get that right as we go through, because my mind wants to say Joppa when I see it, right? These are the places that our story is going to take place today. Peter's going to go down to Luda, and I say down because he really is going down. Usually when we say we're going down somewhere, we mean south. In this case, he's going down in elevation. So Jerusalem is at about 2,500 feet above sea level, and as you go to the west, you go down to this large 
coastal plain. You can kind of see it on the shading of the map there. And so by the time you get to Luda, you're only about 180 feet above sea level. The highest point in Ohio is about 1,500 feet above sea level. The lowest point in Ohio is about 500 feet above sea level on the Ohio River at Cincinnati. So in our entire state, we've got a total of 1,000 feet of elevation difference. Peter here, he's going to walk down 2,300 feet, and he's going to do it in about the same distance as from here to Piqua. So he's got a nice coast and downhill all the way. He can probably do it in one day if he's hustling because the downhill helps. Peter has been traveling around in the region of Jerusalem. He's spreading the circle bigger. And why he goes to Luda, we're not really particularly sure, but God has a plan for him there. So Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 32, we read this. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Luda. Now notice how the New Testament refers to these people, how, he, how it uses the word saints. We tend to think of saints as like the, the hero super-Christians of old. In fact, some church traditions have, have particular rules about how you define a saint. It has to be a Christian who's been dead for a while and has uh, provable uh, evidence of a miracle that they've worked in order to be a saint. But that's not how the New Testament uses the word saint. In the New Testament, the saints are the regular people of God. So if you are, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again in Christ, you're not only a new creation, you're not only adopted into the family of the king of the universe, but you are a saint. So maybe after the church service today, when you're greeting each other, you can refer to each other as saint so-and-so in order to get into the, the practice of that. That is fundamentally who you are, and that's how the New Testament uses this word. Verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. We don't know why he became paralyzed. We don't know uh, if this is a result of an accident or a neurological problem or what has happened, but he is unable to leave his bed for eight years. There are no wheelchairs. There are no accessible minivans. Uh, there are no tracks in the ceiling to get him from one room to the other. He is stuck in bed for eight years. He can't go visit his friends and his family members whom he loves and misses. He is entirely dependent on others for everything that he needs, even his personal hygiene and bathroom needs. It's even worse than being in COVID quarantine for eight years. In the sovereign plan of God, though, Peter happens to come to this guy. He sees him in his bedridden state, and he has compassion on him. He is moved to do something to help this man. It's kind of surprising what he does. Verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now, if you're kind of new to reading the Bible... This may be shocking to you. Are we to expect that some dude walks into a house, sees another dude who has not been able to get out of bed for eight years, simply says a few words, and the guy is able to get up and walk? To much of the world, that seems like lunacy. 
And yet the Bible has proven itself over and over again to be the trustworthy word of God that this, this thing actually happened. And the good Dr. Luke has recorded it for us. He's made sure that he's checked all the details like he does all through the Gospel of Luke, all through the book of Acts. He's careful about it as an historian. He says, this really happened. Now, notice that it doesn't say that Peter healed him, right? Peter walks up. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. So Peter knows that it's nothing special about him. It's not like he has this magic power coursing through his veins. He knows where the power, the authority comes from. He has seen his Lord and Savior heal people in the past. He knows that he, like the song we sang this morning, he needs Jesus. He's under no illusion that this is about him. He walks up and says, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, where is Jesus at that moment? Well, he's the same place he is right now. He's on the throne in heaven, reigning over the universe. And so we are to believe that somehow a man who was hung on a Roman cross, buried in a grave, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven where he is enthroned today, is somehow also present and active in that room, in that no-name house on a no-name street in Luda, healing a man that has been in bed for eight years. That's what this story is telling us. Think about the things that, that had to happen for this to work. This man has not been able to stand on his own for eight years. His muscles are atrophied. His joints are probably creaky and out of place. Uh, there's probably significant rewiring of his brain and his nervous system that has to take place. Just relearning the, the balance and the, the way to hold yourself up. It would, it would be as though our precious Owen could suddenly stand. Think of all that would have to happen in order for his brain to be able to control his muscles, to have the strength and the balance and all that. He, he can't even sit up on his own. If you prop him up, eventually he just falls over. Imagine what took place inside, all of the things coming back together in order for this man to rise up. But for some of us in this room, that may not even be the most encouraging, amazing part of this. So moms, I know that Mother's Day is next week. Guys, got just a few days left, okay? Take that into account. Mother's Day is next week, but moms, look at this in, the, in this verse here. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and what? Make your bed. Yeah. So why does Peter say that? It doesn't matter, because now you can quote Scripture at your kids and grandkids. You can say, Johnny... Acts 9.34, rise and make your bed, right? What happens? He rises. Does he make his bed? We're not told. Oh, well, I guess it's not that important. As crazy as this story seems and feels to us, this is a little bit old hat for Peter because he has watched Jesus do this before, and he himself has been used by God to heal people already before. Now, he's probably not bored with this, but he's also not surprised as we are. He's not shocked. But what about the people of the village of Luda? What effect will this have 
on them? How will they react when their buddy Aeneas, who they know has been stuck in bed for eight years, walks out of his house? Verse 35. All the residents of Luda and Sharon, a neighboring village and also a whole region there called Sharon, saw him. They turned to the Lord. Now, I love this for a few reasons. One, Peter just kind of vanishes from the story. It's not about him. This is about Jesus. Aeneas is healed by Jesus. Jesus is using Peter as the the vehicle for that, but he is healed by Jesus. And the attention is drawn not to Peter here, but to Jesus. And the people of the town and the surrounding regions, they turn to the Lord. Now, assumed in that is also a turning away from whatever it is they were trusting in in the past. That is the repentance side of the coin. For us, that usually means we have to turn away from uh, our self-reliance, believing that we're in charge of our lives, that we're calling the shots, or even sometimes we think that maybe we are the ruler of our lives. We turn away from that, and then, as it's said here, we turn to the Lord in faith. And that faith is not a mental idea. It's not a, here's a list of things that we agree to. We believe that these are true. No, it's a faith that is active. It is the act of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. We turn away from trusting in ourselves. We turn towards trusting in Christ alone for salvation. It's like if Aeneas was still a little wobbly and he had to have a cane and he's leaning on that cane, if that cane breaks, he's going down. That is trust in the idea of trusting in Christ. You're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in Christ alone. That's what's happening in the lives of these people as a result of this amazing, amazing miracle. Well, I wish we could have more details there. How long did Peter stay? What kind of conversations did he have? How fast did the news travel? We don't know that, but we do know that the news did travel because something happens in the nearby town of Yope. And the people send for Jesus, I'm sorry, for Peter to get help. Verse 36. Now there was in Yope a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So we're told that this particular lady has two names, a Hebrew name, Tabitha, and a Greek name, Dorcas. And as funny as that sounds to us today, it was not an insult then. Both Tabitha and Dorcas have the same meaning. Her name was Gazelle. So a picture of a little gazelle here, a a small deer-like creature. Matthew, would you go to the picture of the gazelle, please? Small. It's very cute, isn't it? Graceful would be the the word I would use for a gazelle. Now, we don't know if Tabitha or Dorcas, we don't know if she was small like a gazelle, but we do know that she was graceful like a gazelle. She was full of grace. We're told here, we get a little more detail later, that she, she spent her time making clothing and probably blankets and other things in order to, to help the widows and others in need in the town where she lived. 
Now, if you go back to the 1800s, many churches in America had what were called Dorcas societies, where some ladies would come together and they would sew together in order to make a bunch of clothing and blankets and other things in order to give to those who were in need. Now, I don't know of any churches around here right now that have a Dorcas society that's kind of a fad that has passed a couple hundred years ago, but it's named after this lady here, Tabitha or Dorcas. Well, our sweet, gracious gazelle got ill and died. What the people do next is predictable. They wash her body and they lay her out in an upper room. That's what everybody would have done then. But what they do after that is a little bit of a surprise. They're 11 miles from the town of Luda. They say, we have heard what Peter has done there. Let's send for him. And what? What do they expect? What do they hope that Peter will do? Maybe Peter will come and explain the word to them, encourage them from the the word of God, help them deal with their grief, or maybe they are so audacious as to hope that this man who could raise Aeneas up from his bed may be able to raise their beloved Dorcas from the dead. What are they hoping for? We're not sure. Verse 38. Since Luda was near Yopa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the, window, all the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. So he comes to the house goes to the upper room, it's full of widows, weeping, mourning over the loss of their friend, showing to Peter, look, these are the clothes that this beloved woman made for us. She loved and served us, and we are so sad that she's gone. And Peter responds by saying, okay, leave, get out, get out of the room, get out. What kind of a jerk is Peter? What is going on? How can he kick the mourners out, right? But Peter is a disciple of Jesus. And and for him, he is going to follow the example of his Lord, even down to details such as this. Because Peter, he's probably immediately thinking back to another situation where Jesus himself is called to a similar situation. And what does Jesus do, he kicks out the mourners. We find this in Mark 5. Jesus is on his way to the house of Jairus, who was a ruler of the Jewish synagogue. Jairus' daughter had died. And here's what we read in Mark 5, 38 through 43. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, we could go on about the details there. You know, how are they going to hide this? They don't tell anybody. Really, how are you going to keep that secret? But 
But what I want you to see here is Peter is one of the guys, when this is happening, watching. There is a young woman who is dead. Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. And what does he do? He sends all the extra mourners and spectators, he sends them out. So it makes sense that when Peter is in a similar situation, like, okay, what did Jesus do? He kicked the people out. Okay, everybody out. Right? There's a simplicity, almost a simple-mindedness in that that could be a real inspiration for us. What did Jesus do? What would it mean for me to do like Jesus? We analyze, we give all kinds of well, what ifs and this and that, and this is different. But what, I mean, what if we approached life more like Peter? This is how my Lord lived and loved and ministered to people, and I'm just going to do what he did. And do it in the way that he did it. I think that's what's happening here. Peter is a disciple of Jesus. It means he's a learner, he's a student, he's a follower, and as a disciple, he looks to his master for guidance and instruction, even in crazy situations like this. He is simply following his Lord. There is a significant difference between what Jesus does, which is his daughter, and what Peter now does with Gazelle. Peter, we are told, kneels down in prayer because he knows he needs his Lord. He cannot do this. Jesus, full authority, full power, he can just do whatever he wants. But Peter is dependent upon his Lord. And so we're not told what he prays, but I am sure it's a prayer of humility and asking for help. This rising rock star of the Christian church, is not full of himself. He knows he needs his Lord. So the disciple of Jesus comes in prayer to Jesus and asks Jesus to restore the life of what we assume is another disciple. Now, even in humility, that is a bold thing to hope for and to ask. You know that the first miracle that we looked at today was also essentially a repeat of something that Jesus had done. John chapter 5 tells us that Jesus approached a paralyzed man in the city of Bethesda. He had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus walks up to him and tells him to arise, take up your mat, and walk. This is very similar to what Peter did with Aeneas. Arise, make your bed. Arise, take up your mat. Both stories, Peter is simply following the example of his master. Verse 40, back in Acts 9. But Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, if we were telling this story through a movie, there'd be a lot of dramatic music, uh, dramatic lighting that stretch out to many minutes long. Luke is like, here are the details. We're just going to give this information to you, and you're going to have to imagine all the rest of it. (coughs) Excuse me. But this woman was dead. 
and now she's alive. Imagine the, just the, the um, offense of the mourners as they're kicked out, and then the murmuring in the mourners, like, what's going on in there anyway? And then the door opens, and there stands their beloved Tabitha alive. And the, the gasps of shock as they realize that she has been raised from the dead. That initial shock and celebration spread quickly throughout the area, just like the news of Aeneas being healed spread quickly. And more people came to faith in Jesus. Crowds of people. Verse 42. And it became known throughout all of Yopa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Yopa for many days with one Simon a tanner. So crowds of people are brought into the family of God. They've witnessed the miracle. They are convinced that God is supernaturally working, and they're going to listen to whatever this man Peter has to say. I assume that Peter took advantage of this in order to share the gospel with people, to proclaim that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, that his substitutionary death on the cross is what paid the penalty that we could not pay in order to have our sins forgiven, and that if you repent of your sinful self-willed life and trust in Christ alone for salvation, you can be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. I assume he stood on the streets and he proclaimed something like that, but we're not told that in this passage. Whatever the evangelistic message of Peter was, Luke decided not to include it. Instead, he includes something else. He says that Peter, verse 43, stayed in the town for many days with one Simon the Tanner. Peter recognizes that these new disciples need to be discipled. He is the number one disciple in the church at the time, and he decides to stick around and to instruct and to teach and to model what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. How many days was he there? We don't know. Did he spend 12 hours a day just teaching and correcting and helping them understand the Old Testament scriptures? And We don't know how he went about that. But he stayed there intentionally for days, helping these disciples grow in their brand new baby faith. This is important for us to understand, friends. Not only are we called to be disciples, we are called to be disciple makers. It's as though if, if you were walking hand in hand with Jesus and he's ahead of you leading and you've got somebody else's hand behind you that you're pulling along behind you. You're a little farther ahead in the faith. They're a little farther behind you in the faith, but you are helping them grow and walk in line with Jesus. Peter didn't have it all figured out. Peter could have felt great shame and guilt as he remembered how he betrayed and abandoned his Lord. And yet, because Jesus has loved and restored him, he can now pour his life out, not in shame, but in service to these brand new baby Christians and instruct them on what it means to be a disciple. Peter is a disciple maker. He is more than that, but he's also less than that too. He is a disciple. 
still learning, still growing, still needing correction, still needing his Lord to lead him to maturity. He does not have it all figured out. In fact, he has a lot yet to learn and some pretty hard correction to go through. In in the next chapter, in chapter 10, we're going to see how Jesus is going to flip Peter's worldview completely upside down. And he's preparing Peter for that in this, these last two stories in chapter 9. In chapter 10, God is going to blow open the doors of the church and welcome in the Gentiles. Up until this point, the, the Christian religion was primarily Jewish people who recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like a subset of Judaism. But starting in chapter 10, those doors are going to get blown open, and the, the, the people of the whole world are going to be welcomed in. Now, this was the plan from the beginning. Jesus said to his disciples, go out, make disciples of all nations, but it's really going to start in the next chapter. God's going to have to directly, intentionally, repeatedly intervene in Peter's life to get it through his thick skull that this is the plan. Because Peter's going to resist that. And so he starts working on Peter in these stories that we have in chapter 9 right now. There are two hints in chapter 9 that God is about to flip Peter's world upside down. The first one is that Luke makes a clear effort to tell us both the Hebrew and the Greek name of Tabitha Dorcas. He didn't have to do that. He could have just told us Tabitha and left it at that. But he's dropping this hint. And even even in the verse where he describes how much she has been generous to the other widows, he intentionally uses the Greek name Dorcas. Are we meant to assume from that that the widows that she is serving are Gentiles? Maybe. We don't know. That would fit in the storyline. That would fit with the idea of making sure that we use that Greek name when we're talking about that. But even just using the name in the story, is, especially for the first hearers, is getting the pump primed for what is coming. Now, the second thing is a little different kind of hint. So Peter sticks around for days. Luke makes sure that he tells us that. And he tells us that he stays in the house of Simon, who is a tanner. Now, I think it's a beautiful poetic thing that Simon is Peter's old Hebrew name, right? Before Jesus changes it. But the name doesn't matter here. It's the occupation. Simon is a tanner. He prepares animal skins processing them so they can become useful leather raw material so that a leather worker then can turn them into something like a pouch or a wineskin or a, a hatchet cover or things like that. And we said, well, what's, what's the big deal? Why would, why would Luke include that? Well, in the Jewish religious system, there are certain things that you can do that make you ceremonially unclean. Handling a dead body, doing the work of tanning the skin to turn it into usable leather is specifically listed as making you unclean. That means if your job is to be a tanner, you are removed from the religious life of the Jewish community because you cannot go to the temple, you cannot go to the synagogue without going through this long process of of ritual purification 
To do that, you have to stop doing your job. And then as soon as he's worshipped, you go back and you're all unclean again. It's just this endless cycle. And so you are left out of the Jewish religious system. In fact, if you're a tanner, you're not even allowed to have your house inside the city walls in Israel. You have to specifically build it 50 cubits outside of the walls. So, Teague, would you come up here, please? I didn't warn him. So, this is Teague, and uh, Teague is one of our, our volunteer leaders with the youth ministry on Wednesday night. He's doing a great job, but uh, that's not why I'm inviting him to come up here. Come on up, all the way up. So, Teague has a, a handyman and repair and building uh, business of his own, so he's familiar with this a tape measure. Yep. All right. So, a cubit in ancient Israel was defined as the, the length of the average man's forearm. All right, so we've got to pull this out, stick your arm out. Okay, put the fingers all the way out. Let's do this. So where's your elbow? Right there. So about 20 inches. Okay, good. You're right on average. Congratulations. All right, so if we multiply that out, we get a distance of about 83 feet from right here to the back wall of the curved part. That's the 50 cubits. So if you're going to be a tanner in Israel, you have to be at least that far outside of the city walls. You think, well, that's not that far. It's inside our very building here. But if you're talking about a little village where like, the whole thing fits inside this block here, well, that's, that's a significant separation. Thanks, T. You can sit down. You did a good job. Amazing skills. Not only were you left out of the religious life of the community. You were left out of the community because you're quite literally your stinky business. They didn't want it inside the city, so you had to be outside the walls of the city. And and actually, Jewish rabbinical law. So this is not in the Bible. This is just in the 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 laws that get attached to the Old Testament by the rabbis of Jesus' time. Jewish rabbinical law said that if a young woman of Israel is engaged to a man and finds out, shock that he has been involved in the practice of tanning animal skins. Not like it's his job, because she would know that, but he helped out a buddy. She can break the engagement over that. I mean, that's how, that's how badly these people are viewed in society, and yet Peter, of all the places he could have chosen to stay, he is the celebrity in town. Everybody would want to put him up. He chooses to stay at the house of Simon the Tanner. Luke doesn't tell us why. He just goes on. It's like the original audience would have understood and just (gasps) gasped. Why would he choose to do that? God is setting up Peter and setting us up for what's going to happen in chapter 10 as the Gentiles are welcomed in. So Peter has been raised in a system that tells us he must He tells him he must hate and reject certain people. And yet here, he's choosing to stay at the house of one of those people that he should hate and reject. So the next chapter, when God takes it a few steps further than that, and and he resists, he's at least walking in the right direction. He begins to see that he's not only called to be a disciple of the Jewish Messiah and a disciple maker of the Jewish people, but that he is actually called to do what Jesus told him to do with his very own mouth, to go out into all nations and make disciples of all 
people. Jesus is patiently working on Peter, even as he's using Peter to do amazing things. He's working on the disciple while the disciple is being a disciple maker, bringing him around so that he can better serve Jesus on mission. And I hope that is encouraging to you too. Let's bring this home. Parents and grandparents, do you know that you are called to disciple your kids and grandkids? Now, that's going to look different in all kinds of homes and family relationships and the amount of time that you get to spend with kids or grandkids, but let me, let me make a couple concrete suggestions to you on how you can both be a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker of the young ones who are in your care. First of all, let me suggest uh, prayer at mealtimes is a, is a great way to disciple your kids. Now, you could do like the, the same prayer every time, and there's nothing sinful about that. But let me suggest that if you mix it up, that you lead them in prayer every day or every meal, uh, every dinner as you have together, that the way that you pray, the things that you pray for are teaching them how to pray themselves. And so if you're going to teach them how to pray, let me suggest that you strategically focus in on thankfulness. You want your kids and grandkids to grow up to be thankful, grateful people, right? One great way of shaping that is to make sure that a large chunk of that regular mealtime prayer is one of thankfulness. Whether it's thankful for the food, thankful for the members of your family, thankful for the things that, that God has been doing in your life, thankful even for the hardships that you're going through. When your kids or grandkids hear hundreds, thousands of times, thank you, Lord, for these things, you are shaping them to be thankful, praying people. If your kids are young and you tuck them into bed, or even if they're not so young and you tuck them into bed, we encourage you to pray with them at bedtime too. Again, giving weight to the thankfulness. The other thing I would encourage you in is in Bible reading, and I would go back to mealtime for this. Eat dinner together, and then spend a few minutes in Bible reading. The way this looks in our family is we finish the meal, one of the kids goes gets the Bible, we turn to whatever the next chapter is. So right now we're working through the book of Psalms, we're at 138 or something like that, and they're, they're holding up hands. Did I get that right? 138? 134? Close enough. So we read through the next chapter, or if it's a really long chapter, just a little bit, or if it's a short chapter, maybe a couple chapters, and we pause every once in a while and say, did you, under, you understand what that word is? Do you know what that means? Or what, what is the Bible trying to tell us in this? What's, what's the main point? Or what do, you, what do you think about this? Just pausing and asking questions and then praying briefly at the end. That discipline of, of reading the word with them each dinner is slowly discipling them, training them in the way of the Lord. Now, depending on the age of your kids, maybe you'd be better off reading like a storybook Bible, working through that with them. If you were here on Easter Sunday, we gave away uh, condensed, just the, the crucifixion and, and Easter stories of a new storybook Bible. Uh, I meant to bring my full copy of that, but I forgot to today. But in the back of that little condensed version is information about the full copy. It is a great tool to work through with the younger kids, whether at bedtime or at mealtime, helping them learn and read. Now, if you've got slightly older kids, you might be thinking, 
this is a little scary to me because they're going to ask me questions that I am not going to be able to answer. Or they're going to challenge me. They're going to say, what? You pronounced that wrong. That doesn't make it. You know, they're going to challenge you in things. And so the best way that I would recommend to quickly get yourself ready for that is before dinner, read it yourself and read the notes out of a good study Bible. So I recommend this all the time to you guys. So I'm going to give away another copy of the ESV study Bible. I'm just going to set it up here, the first person to get it. This is your copy. Now, this is a condensed version. It's got all the notes, but it's smaller type. So if your eyes are not so good, uh, don't tackle anybody to get this. Leave it for somebody with the better eyes. But you can read that. You can read the notes on the bottom. And then when your kids ask you the question, you could be the hero because you know the answer because you just read the, the answer in the notes at the bottom of the page before them. Those are small, simple, few minutes a day things that over the course of years make a difference in a child. You are discipling a child in the way of Jesus. Now, as we transition into a time of communion, I want to remind you that I, I typically read from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul tells us that we are to remember and proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes. Those two words, remember and proclaim, fit very nicely into what we have as our story in Acts today. You as a disciple are called to remember what Jesus has done for you, what the Lord has taught us in his word. How are you going to remember that unless you are being a disciple and learning what he says? You can't remember something if you didn't learn it before. So as a disciple of Jesus, in order to remember, you must be growing as a disciple yourself. Then the other side of it, the proclaim is the disciple-making side. You are to be a disciple and to be used by God to make disciples. And so now you don't only remember what God has been teaching you in his word, you proclaim it to others. It could be as simple as reading the Bible to your kids at mealtime. It could be answering their questions. It could be that person at work that is going through a terrible time and their heart is softened and they're open to hearing the, the gospel proclaimed to their, li to their lives. But as we come now to celebrate communion, we can remember and proclaim. We can be disciples, and we can be disciple makers. And it's all about following our Lord, what he told us to do, and the example that he gave us. We're going to spend a couple minutes now in silent reflection. I pray that the words from Acts chapter 9, from Mark 5 that we read, if you want to look up John 5 for that other story that we referenced, the, the words that are now so familiar from 1 Corinthians 11, I pray that these would work in your hearts and your minds, that you'd be able to reflect on how you are as a disciple and as a disciple maker, and that God would move you clearly forward in both of those aspects. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have called us not just to consume, but to also produce. Not just to be feeding on your word, growing ourselves, but to feed others on your word too. Thank you, Lord, that we got to see glimpses into what you were doing in Peter's life and the way that that is an encouragement to us that, that you used him, who is still very much a work in progress, had a lot to learn. You were using him to do amazing things of making and maturing disciples, even as he was maturing as a disciple. And so, Lord, wherever we are in our walk with you, I pray that, that you would be moving us forward as a disciple of you, 
and as a disciple maker for you. Lord, some of us are we're just, we feel overwhelmed when we think about that call to make disciples. Would you help us to be taking steps in that direction? Some of us, Lord, are feeling as though we, what we really need is somebody to disciple us. Lord, I pray that you would provide connections even this week between those who want to be discipled and those who want to disciple. Would you be building us up as disciples and disciple makers? Would you help us to remember and to proclaim your death until you come again? In Jesus' name.